Hill Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. King of kings and Lord of lords, in the midst of our allegiance to other kings and kingdoms, your heavenly kingdom breaks in. Rouse fidelity even now to the marvelous ways of Jesus, our everlasting King. Amen. Throughout the season of Easter, the church intentionally abides in a garden full of hope and possibility, wondering what might grow up here and what good can be done now. With these important Easter questions in mind, today we begin a new sermon series that will explore the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts to try and better understand Jesus' good gospel. Through the lens of these various books, we hope to more fully appreciate Jesus' life into which he invites every person. If you'd like to geek out a bit during this series, you are warmly welcome to read a book a week. Matthew for today, Mark for this next week, Luke the following week. Totally up to you and no pressure, no pressure whatsoever. But it is our hope throughout this series to try and tease out what's unique about each of these books. Yes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all Gospels. And yes, each gospel is about Jesus. And yes, each gospel describes Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And each gospel is unique in its depiction of Jesus. Matthew's telling of Jesus' birth is different from Luke's. Matthew's birth story is cosmic and and action-packed, whereas Luke's story is personal, serene, even calm whereas Mark and John don't even have birth stories of Jesus. And then, of course, there's Mark, which is the smallest book, but it includes the longest passages about Jesus' suffering, intentionally moving us almost like a liturgy by week and then by day and then by hour until we get to Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have very brief post-resurrection stories, while the Gospel of John tells us several post-resurrection stories. And whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell numerous miracle stories, John intentionally counts out six miracles, which then culminate in a seventh miracle, Jesus' resurrection. It's as though through the counting of miracles that John is casting a new creation story into which we're invited to abide within today. And so, even though the Gospels are similar, each Gospel is unique in the way it goes about depicting its good news. And as a reminder, that's what Gospel literally means, good news. And so, for the next few weeks, we're going to be exploring that which is uniquely good 
about Jesus' life through the lens of Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John until finally we'll look at how Jesus' life becomes good news, not just in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, but beyond in the book of Acts. This morning we'll be considering the book of Matthew. Uh, To begin with Matthew, we must begin with what biblical scholars call seams. A seam is a literary stitching together of two sections of scripture. We observe these literary seams in a few places. Uh, There's a seam between the last book in the Torah, Deuteronomy, and the first book in the Nevim, Joshua. In this seam, we begin to look for a leader like Moses who will take Israel into the land. That's the end of Deuteronomy. And we find in Joshua, Yehoshua, literally Yah, God, and Hosea saves, God saves, we're told is the one who, like Moses, is capable of taking Israel into the land. And then there's another scene between the last book in the Nevim, Malachi, and the first book in the Kethuvim, Psalms. In this scene, Malachi encourages us to begin looking for a prophet like Elijah, literally the word of Yah, the word of God, who Malachi tells us will bring about justice. And in the first two chapters of Psalms, the book that comes after Malachi in the Hebrew ordering of the scriptures, we find a ruler, like a tree planted by streams of water, who God calls son, and before whom rulers bow. And then there's one more seam. In the Hebrew ordering of the scriptures, the last book in the Hebrew scriptures is Chronicles. And although this may seem like a weird book to conclude the Hebrew scriptures with, a careful reading of Chronicles makes it a perfect ending. Chronicles provides us with the genealogy of kings in Judah, and it concludes with Cyrus, king of Persia, declaring, let him, singular, let let him go up to Jerusalem and build the God of heaven a temple. And so, as a recap, The first seam in the Hebrew scriptures point to a leader like Moses, who, like Joshua, God saves, will lead his people into a land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, The second seam points to a ruler like Elijah, the word of God, who, like God's son, will bring about justice. And this third seam points to a hymn, a singular hymn who will go up to Jerusalem and build God a temple a house. And so, to try and make this all a little more clear, here's an even more concise recap. As we enter into the New Testament, we're looking with expectant eyes for a Joshua, a God who saves. As we enter into the New Testament, we're looking with expectant eyes for an Elijah, a word of God, who, like God's son, will bring about justice in the world. As we enter into the New Testament, we're looking with expectant eyes for a him who will go up to Jerusalem and build the God of heaven a house on this earth. And I know this is asking a lot, but if this Moses, if this Joshua, if this Elijah, if this God's son, if this him who goes up to Jerusalem to build God a house could also be in the line of Judah, Well, that would be a seamless way to transition from Chronicles to a New Testament, wouldn't it? Matthew chapter 1, 
a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus Christ. Jesus from the Hebrew Joshua, God saves, and Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Matthew, you see, begins with a record of the anointed one who saves. And surprisingly, but not really surprising, we find that this anointed one who saves is in the line of Judah. Thus, Matthew concludes his genealogy with these words that sound almost like they could come right out of the book of Chronicles. There were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Which rouses an important question. Could it be? Could this child be the new Moses who leads his people out of bondage? Could this child be the new Joshua, the God who saves and brings his people into a land flowing with milk and honey? Could this child be the new Elijah, the very word of God, who, like God's very own son, brings about justice? Could this child be the new king, the new David, who brings about a new kind of kingdom? A kingdom without bondage, a kingdom of flourishing, a kingdom marked by justice, a kingdom in which even the least of these fully belong and are deeply loved. Well, in order to answer epic questions like these, you don't want a calm and serene nativity story like Luke's, and you can't just jump right into a grown man's life like Mark and John. No, for a story about a king and this king's kingdom, a king's kingdom without bondage, of flourishing and justice, in which the least of these fully belong and are deeply loved? Well, for a story like this, we need an origin story that scales. Oh, and Matthew does not disappoint. Following the genealogy that makes it clear that Jesus is a king in the mighty line of Judah, Joseph finds out that his soon-to-be wife is with child conceived by the Holy Spirit. This, you see, is no normal child. Then Jesus is visited and worshipped by foreign magi. This, you see, is no normal child. Then King Herod, like Pharaoh, tries to kill all Jewish baby boys. This, you see, is no normal child. Then Jesus' parents flee to Egypt for safety, like Israel fled to Egypt during a famine. This is no normal child. Then Jesus comes out of Egypt and is baptized in a river like Israel did fleeing from bondage. This is no normal child. Then Jesus is tempted in a wilderness for 40 days like Israel was tempted in the wilderness for 40 years. You see, Matthew is saying this is no normal child. And just in case we're unclear on Matthew's epic purpose for Jesus, he uses a particular phrase not once or twice or or three times, but at least eight times. Matthew writes, this was to fulfill. This was to fulfill. A few examples from chapter one. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall name him Emmanuel. And from Matthew chapter 2, Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night, and went to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, 
Out of Egypt I have called my child. And from Matthew chapter 8, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Make no mistake about it. Matthew's Jesus is epic. This is what Matthew is getting at. Matthew's Jesus is Moses who liberates from bondage. Matthew's Jesus is Joshua who leads to flourishing. Matthew's Jesus is Elijah who works out justice. Matthew's Jesus is God's word, God's very own son. The anointed one in the line of David who as king inaugurates a heavenly kingdom, a new kind of kingdom on this earth. A new kind of kingdom on earth. After genealogy, virgin birth, Herod's attempt on Jesus' life, exiting Egypt in 40 days in the wilderness, all of this in just the first four chapters of Matthew. Matthew then explains that Jesus goes to a mountainside, very much like Moses did at Sinai after Israel fled Egypt. And Jesus, very much like Moses, who explained God's law from that mountainside. Jesus casts vision for the kind of kingdom into which he is inviting every person. According to Jesus and his Sermon on the Mount, the poor, those who mourn, those who hunger and thirst for a better world, those who make peace with their lives, and those who are persecuted. In other words, those who are marginalized, those who are considered weak, those who long for better because this, whatever this is, is not good enough. And those who are harmed by all that this is, well, according to Jesus, they belong. They have a place. In fact, Jesus says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And not tomorrow, not some fantastical day way down the road, but today, here, now. For the kingdom that this new king is casting is especially for the kinds of people for whom most kingdoms refuse life, liberty, and every other kind of goodness. But it's more than just blessed are the persecuted. According to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, fidelity to his kingdom is about something much more substantial than following rules. It's deeper than that. It's better than that. You see, we can try to make following after Jesus into a system of beliefs to which we adhere. Something like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Oh, but, but adherence to theological statements doesn't necessarily result in goodness. In fact, theological adherence, dogma, can often be the substance for that which is bad, harmful, exclusive. Think religious leaders, think scribes, think Pharisees. These people believed the right kinds of statements. These people followed the right kinds of rules, but their statements and rules did not make for the kind of kingdom into which this new king was envisioning. And so, these were the very people, the religious, the leaders, who Jesus had the most trouble with as he cast vision for a new kind of kingdom. You see, Jesus' invitation is not to believe in statements and to abide by rules. Jesus' invitation, the vision that he's casting, is for us to care deeply about matters such as justice, 
mercy, belonging, and love. And it's to tend to that which is going on inside, at the very core of ourselves. And so Jesus is teaching us, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, to ask questions like this. What is happening when I'm angry? What is happening when I'm covetous? What is happening when I'm wronged? What is happening when I'm needy? What is happening when I'm afraid? What is happening? Because you see these experiences point to something not external, but something that is deeply internal. These experiences point at something much deeper and much more important than our behavior, which is at the very core of who we are as humans. And if we live in a world of beliefs and rules, then the invitation to grow and to become more good will be eclipsed by our attempts to think and to live right. Here's an example of what I mean. Our kids are now 11, 13, and 15. At times, they talk at the same time and ask questions at the same time and need my attention at the same time. And in these times, at times, <laughs> I feel short or agitated or upset. And I could spend all of my energy attempting to think right and to act right. Right? Like, do not be agitated, Mike. Be kind. Do not be short, Mike. Be gentle. This is what God wants from you, Mike. Oh, but is this what God wants? Is the divine invitation to white-knuckle kindness? Or is the divine invitation to truly and honestly become more kind? I'm convinced that it's the latter. And this latter invitation does not happen by white-knuckling kindness through thinking and acting rightly. No. It comes by reimagining again and again, over and over, day by day, the kind of world we live in and the kind of God in whom we move and breathe and have our being. For example, when Jesus encourages a way of being that is trusting, as opposed to worrisome. His Sermon on the Mount proclaims a world in which the divine is generous and cares for birds and lilies with tender attention. And when Jesus speaks of being in need, he audaciously declares, ask of God, not as another pious routine, but because we are coming to trust in a Lord who, like a parent, is bent on giving children good gifts even if it just be the breath of life in a terribly difficult moment. And so in his sermon, Jesus casts vision for mercy, self-reflection, trust, generosity, brother and sisterhood, not or else, not because I said so, but because such living is living from the very heart of the divine. Such living is living into the kingdom of heaven that Jesus declares is among us. Or, as Matthew is making clear, this new Moses, he liberates from bondage. This new Joshua, he leads to flourishing. This new Elijah, he works out justice. This new word of God, God's son, the anointed one in the line of David, king. This king is inviting us to reimagine this world. This king is inviting us to reimagine the divine. This king is inviting us to reimagine our part in everything. Which is to say, we are being invited to enter more deeply into ultimate reality, 
that is kind, that is just, that is merciful, and that is good, so wonderfully good. From epic beginning to revolutionary sermon, Jesus then speaks what are often called kingdom parables in Matthew 13, saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is like seed scattered upon the earth. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like a net let down into a lake. Like. It's a word used in a literary form called a simile. A simile compares one thing to another thing using the word like or as. And so to be clear, Jesus is not saying the kingdom of heaven is, 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 is. We children of the enlightenment love the word is. But Jesus refrains from such language. Similar to rules and behavior, the rule, the word is, when it comes to a kingdom like heaven, tends to lose the majesty and mystery and miracle of heaven. According to Jesus in his kingdom parables, the kingdom of heaven isn't is, rather the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like a seed that can change hearts. The kingdom of heaven is like a field owned by a farmer who is patient with the growth of his farm. According to Jesus in his kingdom parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a tree, a mustard seed that grows up into a tree and covers and makes home for every kind of bird. According to Jesus in his kingdom parables, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's like a coin. It's like an invaluable pearl. That is to say valuable, not because it makes you in rather than out, and not because it makes you right rather than wrong, but because you've begun opening yourself to a just and merciful and kind and good God, whose life and kingdom are on display for all to see through this anointed son of David, Jesus. But you see, political and religious leaders cannot fathom this kind of king or kingdom. In fact, many of us would rather have people assent to behavior and beliefs. Many would rather have people in or out based on race or sexuality or gender or creeds or deeds. All the while, Jesus ignores all of that, sidesteps it, pivots, and invites again and again, come Come and simply, merely, wonderfully follow after me. All the while, Jesus breaks bread and pours wine, saying, Do this in remembrance of me. All the while, pinned to a tree, political and religious people think, We got rid of him. We put an end to that nonsense. Only to find a few days later an empty tomb and a risen Lord, who stands on a mountaintop with his eleven disciples, saying, Go. Go and speak of my life. Go and share of my life. Go give this loving life to the entire world. And just before ascending to the right hand of the Father in Matthew chapter 28, we read that the disciples worshipped him, but some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. 
Now, if you're in a world of right and wrong, belief or unbelief, then that is a terribly tragic statement. But if you're learning of the ways of Jesus and following in the ways of of Jesus in which God is like a farmer who is patient with his farm, then this language is so beautiful. I mean, if absolute belief is the goal of Christianity, then Jesus was an absolute failure. He couldn't even get 11 to fully believe in him. But such thinking is a misreading of Jesus in Matthew. The kind of kingdom that Jesus is speaking of isn't a kingdom in need of converts. Rather, the kind of kingdom that Jesus is speaking of and is inviting us into even now is a gentle community of human beings waking to a present and loving God who, like Jesus himself, makes compassionate space for every person in a kingdom like a seed, like a pearl, like a tree that is home, truly home for every part of you and every part of me and every part of every other, especially the other. Believe? Great. Doubt and have questions about Jesus and his way? Also great. It's all part of the life into which Jesus, the son of David, invites us all day by day and week by week and month by month and season by season and year by year as we follow after our Lord who endlessly invites us, come, come and follow after me. And let us pray. King of kings and Lord of lords in the midst of our allegiance to other kings and kingdoms your heavenly kingdom and invitation break in. Rouse fidelity even now to the marvelous ways of Jesus, our everlasting King. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.